a little something to take the edge off. Water of my thirst. I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> but okay, so I saw um, Ernie using an iPad his notes instead of just printing them out like I always do. So now I got to see if I can figure out how to use this too. Wouldn't it be funny if it just didn't work and I had to do everything from memory? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's not what I need. Don't, don't worry. I think I got this. Oh, it wants to update software. Um, yes. All right. Good. Ernie is on sabbatical. Check. Dejarnet. Check. All right. We are going to continue in our look at the Psalms, uh, the story of David as it occurs in the books of Samuel, and then his writings about it in the Psalms. Uh, we're looking at the end of 1 Samuel, chapters 30 and 31, and we'll look at Psalm 18. Um, but, of course, let's begin with prayer. All right, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this congregation, this opportunity we have to, to listen to your word, to dwell on it, to worship you. Lord, I pray that, that what I say today um, moves people's hearts to, to worship you. If I say anything that's not helpful, let it just not register. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all of this. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, we can turn to 1 Samuel 30 again. There are two different stories in 30 and 31. They're mostly related, but I'm going to give you just a, a few things that we're going to be looking for as we go through these. So this is what I thought of as a summary. God is our provider, our protection, our salvation. He is faithful in his promises abundant in his love, and generous in his mercy and care. Therefore, we remain faithful, loving, and generous because we know this is true. Okay, so let's just take a quick look through some of these. I, I love reading just the whole thing, but again, I watched Ernie like only read sections and then summarize, so I'm going to try that. We'll see how it goes. All right, so let's start with uh, chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negeb, the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I think that's enough for now. Right? They also talk about stoning David because they're so forlorn. And imagine, like, your family is gone. Right? Everything that you live for is now taken from you. I, this is a striking statement. They raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They were spent. Can you imagine that? Okay. I mean, just imagine your family is taken from you, right? Okay. Yeah, I can imagine that. That would be me. Yes. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So after they say, we're going to stone you, they've all wept until they could weep no more. They say, 
he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That, let's see, it's, we, we read that and say, oh, of course he did, right? But really think about that. What does that take to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Right? That, that's, it says a lot, but it doesn't say it in many words, right? So let's just put that as a side note. We're going to get to that. In the next part, and David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Side note, because I love side notes. Uh, does everyone recall, um, what was that last week, right? The massacre at Nob when Saul killed all of the priests? No, I know it was a, just a blip in the conversation, but like, yeah, that happened. Like, okay, kill them all. One of them escaped. His name was Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. He ran to David. David, even while he's running for his own life, I remember things in the previous chapters haven't been all sunshine and puppies for, for David. Like, things have been pretty dark. Like, he, uh, he comes and joins him, right? Abiathar is now with him, still serving as priest. So he said, bring me the ephod. Um, if you're not familiar, ephod, we'll just call it like the holy garment of asking. It's something used in the priest, um, of course, to inquire of the Lord. So David is inquiring of the Lord, shall I go after them? Shall I go and get this, return our families? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Okay, done. Easy answer. So they went out, got the 600 men. Um, remember that they had wept until they had no more strength, so they were heading here, and some of those men are like, I've wept until I have no more strength. I've got to wait on this side of the river. And they go, okay, you stay with the baggage. Group of us, we're going to go ahead and chase after these guys and get our wives back. Right? So, ooh, it sounds like an action movie, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen a movie. Okay. Um, but so they, they left them behind, and they went, and guess what? They were successful. I mean, not a surprise, right? Because God said, yeah, you do it. You'll get everything. Um, I'm going to skip over some of this, right? There we go. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Like not only did they get back all their stuff, they got more stuff and the, of these men who, you know, just a little while earlier had wept until they could weep no more, saying, yes, we are victorious. Look at what David did. Look at all that David has. Then they come back to the river where the other men who were resting were there, and these, they, I love when every time when I hear this phrase, what is it, um, some of the worthless and wicked fellows among the men. They didn't even call them men. They call them fellows. But anyhow, they come back to the river and say, like, those guys who've just been lounging around because they're wimps, they don't get any of this of David's spoil because they didn't fight for it. Yes, they can have their wives and kids because they're not monsters, but they're not getting any of this other, uh, what's the word, booty? Isn't that the pirate term for it, right? Yeah, like, right, they, they're plunder, right? Okay. Um, then David says to them, basically, like, what, what are you doing, right? You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He preserved us and has given into our hand the band that came against us. 
Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made this a rule. And on. Listen, they're saying, this is David's spoil. And David says, no, this is God's given to us. Do you really think it's right for us to say, yeah, I got it. I earned it. No, you didn't. God gave it to you. Now you're going to share it. All right, just hold that on as a side note, kind of like the, the conclusion of chapter 30. Next, chapter 31, Saul dies. That's the end of it. Um, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, what, two notes here, Philistines, significance, right? Remember that, Just anything here? Philistines are Goliath, right? Like David, remember? Okay, just put in a little context here. Next, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through. Just in case that didn't make sense, I don't want these heathens to desecrate my body. You kill me. Then I'll die honorably, so he thinks. Who used to be Saul's armor bearer? David. Yeah. Right, so so the, the young boy who Saul tried to give his armor and sword to fight the Philistines is now replaced by another person, an armor bearer, and is being asked to take that sword and kill me. Kind of a weird little turnaround there, huh? All right. There's no real lesson. I just see the, that's all. All right, um, the armor bearer says, no, I can't do that, never will I ever. And he says, okay, and so he does it himself. And then the armor bearer goes like, well, great. So he does it to himself. So we've got three sons, Saul and the armor bearer, all dead. Do you remember not that long ago uh, when Saul didn't inquire of the Lord, but rather went to a medium to talk to the dead Samuel to try to figure out what to do? And what did Samuel say? I'm paraphrasing. Why'd you wake me? What are you doing? You and all of your sons are gonna die tomorrow. Ooh, okay. I d you didn't notice that he had a lot of response then, but no, nope, here it is. It happened. Yes, now they are all dead. This seems to end on a down note. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here. Don't worry. There's, there's, some, there's some light at the end. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. That's right. They had a different gospel, a good news to spread, Right? What is that good news? I and mean, what are they saying? Like, we defeated them? No, why did they take the news to the house of their gods? They're saying, hey, our gods are stronger. Right? All right. There's, I like this one. It gets good. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. 
But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. All right, now we're going to do a word-by-word analysis. Um, no, let's, they're just, again, side notes. That's what I love. First Chronicles. I think I've got that one marked here. First Chronicles 10 is basically the same story. I mean, it's, it's almost word for word at times. Let's see. I'm just going to go to the end of it. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So far, yep. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. See what I mean? So I guess the same, right? And, and they put his armor in the temple of their gods, didn't mention Ashtaroth by name there, and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Does anyone remember anything about Dagon? It wasn't that long ago in this book that we were hearing about Dagon. All right, so the Philistines, they, um, they captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they said, well, our God is stronger than your God. They put the Ark of the Covenant into the Temple of Dagon as basically a, a gift to their God, Dagon. Other weird side note, Dagon is basically a merman. <laughs> just, I mean, yeah, sorry. you don't have to remember that. Just, it always goes in my head. Um, in, in the house of Dagon, when the Ark of the Covenant was there, they closed it up. They came back the next day. The statue of Dagon was fallen prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, you know, cognitive dissonance, like, no, no, no. So they just, oops, fell down, set them back up, go away again, close the door, come back the next day, fallen down, head and hands broken off and laying in the doorway. Okay, maybe not a coincidence at this point, right? Like, and well, of course, then things went worse and like boils broke out on the people and they said, oh, this... This is a curse. We need to return the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. Like, so that worked out. But this idea, like, okay, so they took the head of Saul and put it in the temple of Dagon. Hey, remember when, when your God took our God's head? Yeah, now our God's taken your king's head. We're still stronger. Philistines rule. That's it, right? Um, when I hear day, I'm like, oh, man, there it is, an Ashtoreth, you know, uh, fertility goddess. You might have heard her on, like, Ishtar and Astarte in Greek and never mind. All right. Um, but also there, right? They say, like, our gods are stronger. That's what they've got. That's a real downer to end on. All right? Okay, but in First Chronicles, after they've fasted seven days, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith of the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord like David did in the last chapter. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. That's the light. Right? Who, who killed Saul? God did. Who chose David as king? God did. Who is in charge of all of this? Yeah, you know, just saying. All right. 
One other side note, because you know I just can't get rid of them. Um, did you hear when they burned the bodies and then buried the bones under a tamarisk tree? Everyone's familiar with a tamarisk tree, right? No? No? Okay. They're, they're not common anywhere. Um, they're a beautiful tree. They are very slow growing. Like, I don't know if anyone's into botany here, but like, think like uh, ginkgo biloba. Nope, that was crickets. All right. <laughs> um, I got an idea here. In First Chronicles, they don't bury him under a tamarisk tree. They say under the oak in Jabesh. Oak trees, they're slow growing. Tamarisk trees were a symbol of generations. Nobody planted a tamarisk tree to enjoy it themselves. They planted it for their children and their grandchildren to enjoy. And this, I'm planting this with the long view. Another way, if you're planting an oak, guess who's really going to sit in its shade? Most likely not you, right? Like that's it. We're looking at the generations. We're looking well beyond. Just, I can't stop when I see a word, tamarisk. Like, wait, where else did this happen? This is a pop quiz. Anyone know? Where else do you see the word tamarisk in the Bible? Nothing? Nothing? I'm not surprised. Um, Genesis. In Genesis, Abraham, just before he's asked to sacrifice Saul, is sitting uh, under a tamarisk tree that he planted, right? I mean, I guess sitting next to, right? Uh, he, he had uh, an agreement with a neighbor, and instead of building an altar as a memorial, he planted a tree that would last for generations. Now, then he's asked to sacrifice his son, so that's a different story. We'll go into that one another time. Um, and then just before this, in, uh, in, still in, in 1 Samuel, back in 22, just before Saul went and killed all the priests, he was sitting under a tamarisk tree thinking about life and how he was going to get David. Right? So, yeah, not a big lesson there, just tamarisk trees for the generations. That's the main thing to hold on to. All right, now, this is the stuff that's happened. We've got David um, winning a battle, bringing back families, and, and celebrating in that this is the provision of God. We have Saul coming to an end by the hand of God so that God's promise, this anointing of David, will carry on. Right? So we've got provision and faithfulness and God's in charge. That's where I. Now let's go to Psalm 18, which was David's response to this. It starts off even before the psalm starts. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Right. So this is the response to what he's doing. I'm not going to read all of this one. It's not really long. I mean, it's not like Psalm 119. But I'm going to give a start to this. All right. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. 
To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then it goes on to some, some great dramatic language, but um, a powerful, angry, kind of scary God coming to, to rescue. Right? And it goes on to talk more about his victories. Um, I do recommend reading all of that. Maybe if we've got time at the end, we'll go back and revisit it all. But after that, he's basically recounting, like, this is how I was feeling. These are the battles. This is who was against me. This is how I've come out because of God. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the Lord or the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. Now this, pay attention to this part. If you zoned out, it's time to listen. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That is a praise. This whole song, I mean, just again, put it in the context. Think of what David has been through and where he is now. This is thanksgiving and praise. That's a big deal. I, there have been, been plenty of psalms, and you've seen them, where there's more asking. Like, God, please, I need you. Help me, rescue me. Here it is, adoration and praise. So our prayers, they'll basically fall into three categories. We call them supplication, adoration, and thanksgiving. You've already got thanksgiving. Now it makes sense, right? Just giving thanks. Adoration, to adore, to praise, to worship, to look at what someone else is, in this case, God. Supplication, maybe less familiar of a word, being supplied, asking for provision. It's the asking part. Now, I'm going to say what I recognize in my life, and I'm going to assume that it will probably resonate with many of you. Many of my prayers focus on supplication, then maybe I'll get to them some thanksgiving. But much less often focuses on adoration. And that's not right, right? Yes, of course we can ask. God tells us to petition him. He is a good father who listens to our needs. We are to thank him, but to adore him, this praise. Let it be guiding. I, I wanted to put out a, how do people like it, like a challenge? You like challenges, Right? I don't know. If you focus on adoration, see how your heart changes. See how it affects what you ask for and how you're thankful. Right? Focus on this. I'm just, this is what this is all about. It's, there's thanksgiving in here. But most of this is not like, oh, thank you, God, for delivering me, but rather this powerful God, this rock, this fortress, this one that no one can shake. He delivered me. Even in the thanks, it's an adoration, right? Like that's, that's significant, right? This is what really stands out to me. All right, also a couple side notes. And you know I love the side notes. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. This is basically quoted later in Romans 15, 9, where it says, and here it's talking about preaching to the Gentiles, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. 
Think of this also in the context back to Abraham. Genesis 12.3, when uh, the Abrahamic covenant is happening, what's, what's God's promise to Abraham? I will make you a great nation, and through you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? So just keep this note. Right? They are they're praising, like David is praising God for his provision, for his faithfulness, and for his promises. And he ends with a praise of, I will praise you to the nations. And I'm, I'm uh, celebrating that you are going to show, continue showing steadfast love to this kingdom forever. Okay, so it's, hold on, it's all going to come together in a minute. Um, Oh, that's why he does this. Look, you just, you don't have to turn a page. Fancy. All right. Thanksgiving and adoration of God's promised blessing on the kingdom and his, and of David and his offspring forever. Who is this talking about? It's talking about David, right? Maybe Solomon. Any, anyone there know past that? Yeah, <laughs> all right. Let's go still stick it in Samuel, Second Samuel 7, uh, 12 through 16. This is, again, speaking uh, to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So yeah, it seems like he's talking about Solomon. Solomon did work to build a house for the Lord, but often when we see a house, it means a lineage. Right? This line that's coming from you, the one I promised you, it will be a kingdom and a throne and a house that is established forever. That is not hyperbole. Get back to that. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The stump of Jesse, David. This seems to be talking about more than just David, right? Revelations 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Romans 8, 14 through 17. This, I think you've already made the connection. The line is Jesus, right? Okay, now one step further. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, 
then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So it took a significant jump there. I will tell you, this isn't a kingdom that lasts forever just in like a long time sense. Literally forever. And this is saying we are of that kingdom. We are heirs of this same line. Like, that's, whew, that's a lot. I, I, if, if you empathize with David in his ups and downs, and you, you feel that celebration, that praise, and then him saying, it would seems like a, a, a quick little end, like, ah, oh, this throne forever. Like, no, forever. It's Jesus. We are co-heirs. We are of this line. This kingdom is what we stand on. Yes, how, and now, now, all of those supplications, those worries that you had, put those in context. What are you standing on? You're standing on a kingdom that will never end. Remember, I don't know, some time ago when I was up here preaching about Daniel, I, I, was, I told you the word emet, this firm stance, is unmoving, unwavering, totally solid. Even in that, right, the, the rock, not cut by human hands, falls from heaven, smashing the kingdoms, grows into a mountain, and is established forever. That's what we stand on. Okay, done. All right. Think of God's faithfulness, his view of the generations. Tamarisk tree, anyone? He is God of covenants. Talked about the Abrahamic and the Davidic. He keeps his promises. He is a loving father that suffered for us. He is constant, unchanging, unwavering, stable, unique. In a word you might have heard before, holy, other. He is not us. When we say, oh, you're so unique, you're like a snowflake, that is not what we're talking about. Yes, you are in some minor ways different from the person sitting next to you, but you are not entirely other. God is. We are made in his image. He is not made in ours. Right? His rock is the kingdom that, that will never end, and we are part of that kingdom. Celebrate this. David was long-suffering and bold because he knew what was promised. You can also be long-suffering and bold because you not only know what was promised, you've been seeing it fulfilled again and again. What do you stand on? Anything uncertain? No. What do you have to lose to be bold, to be generous, to, to share what you know God gave you that you didn't earn? You have nothing to lose. It's not yours. God gave you everything. God carries you. He rescues you. He supports you. That's a point of strength for us. We can share from that with no fear. Hebrews 12, verse 20 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Oh, that was in the, in the worship today, right? For our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah 25, verses 1 and then 7 through 9. 
Cut out just a bit of a repetition. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We are standing on the mountain, still recognizing the veil that's over the nations, knowing that it will be lifted, and that all of this, how do I put it gently, nonsense will end. That's what I'm waiting for. I've got a quote from one of my favorite authors, Ol Hallisby. mentioned him before. He wrote a book called Prayer. And he wrote it so long ago that he didn't have to have any other subtitle to that. Just prayer. Um, Right? Praise lies upon a higher plane than thanksgiving. When I give thanks, my thoughts still circle around myself to some extent. But in praise, my soul ascends to the self-forgetting adoration, seeing and praising only the majesty and power of God, his grace and redemption. Back to that earlier idea, Let's focus on this, the one who established this mountain, this kingdom that is unique beyond us, will never end, and yet we are standing on. We are heirs to it. That is the adoration that should be driving all of our thoughts in prayer. When we ask, it's because we know that God is a God of promises, and he has kept them, and he is faithful. We can be patient, long-suffering, with hope. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want you to take a couple things away. Yes, focus on adoration. There is so much to be in awe of. I mean, just look, look around you. Right? Again, I've talked about trees multiple times, but it's kind of a thing I've got. Look at nature. Look at the beauty of creation. Right? Look, at, look at us. Look at our minds. Look at how we converse with each other. With each other. Look at the, the relationships, the things we do. Like there's, this is God's creation. What's not to be in awe of? In case you were wondering, this didn't come from nothing. That's just a philosophical non-starter. Anyhow, other point. You are standing on a stable rock that will never end. You are recognizing in this adoration that everything you have is thanks to God. 
He is a good provider, a good father. He cares for us. He is our strength, our horn of salvation, our refuge. That's what we've got. Now remember back to, to chapter 30, 1 Samuel, right? What did David do at the end? He, he had had a rough time. He knew that God provided. And what did he do? He shared it. He said, no, this isn't mine. This is God's. This is for us to share. Oh, wait, I got it. Got an idea. Hey, um, sweetheart, you see that book sitting over there? Could you bring that to me? You know that one? She's a good one, huh? All right. Thank you. Um, This book is my main recommendation, um, but this one is a much more recent, paling in comparison, but also a good recommendation. Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy. But I was just finishing it um, two days ago, and the ending here reminded me of what I'm talking about right now. So let's just read a bit of this. Um, The strongest Christian communities, families, congregation, groups of singles, are the ones driven by a larger vision, a sense of ministry. If God has given you a dependable income, a loving spouse, a strong church community, a reliable group of friends, etc., etc., those gifts are not just for you. They are to equip you to reach out and draw in those who are broken and searching. God is giving you the opportunity to bring hope that Christianity is real and not just words, to put flesh and bones on the message of hope and healing. We need to be prepared. I mean, we are prepared, you're just not, like, mentally aware of it. We have what we need. We have what we need to share. Share it. What's the risk? Someone going to think you're, you're weird? I get it, okay? I'm familiar. Um, there's, there's another bit in here. Oh, wait, here you go. All right, he's talking about the, the secular worldview. We know that the way of the world is Again, how to put it gently, nonsense, right? Okay, those around us will increasingly suffer insecurity and loneliness. The new polarization can be an opportunity for Christian communities to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness. You have anything to be thankful for in your life? Yeah, praise God. Why don't you show that? How do you show that? You just want to make a social media post about it? No. Good grief. Side note, don't. Um, Bring people into your life. Let them feel safe. Let them witness. Like, wait, why are you so constant? Why do you never seem shaken? I stand on an unshakable rock. That's it. But... That doesn't even make sense to me. Well, I know. I know that doesn't make sense to you because you're not standing on an unshakable rock. Join me. Let's talk about it. I want to show you what it's like. Does this this sound like a a hymn anyone's heard before? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Can't stop Thing. That's it. What's the world? It's sinking sand. Is there confusion in society now? Yeah, a little bit. Right? Why? Because it's sinking sand. They have they've chosen. I mean, the, 
the enemy has chosen for the world, you will not have anything stable. Anything that is stable is probably an oppressor and needs to be overthrown. You are going to stay sinking. We don't need to sink. We actually have things that don't change. We can stand on those and start grabbing people. Like, oh, you're hurting. You don't know which way is up. Like, we have this. We're this kingdom. We can do what David did and just share. Right? And in all of that, we're still showing adoration. It is worship. The fact that we have such certainty can give us joy and strength. There is no risk for us. Right? We, we stand on strength. We share it in love. That's what we've got. God is a God that keeps his promises. He provides what we need. He's always the same. I'm done. Thanks. I never, I never figure out an ending. <laughs> um, let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We praise you. Given what we've just read in your word, the thoughts that it might um, be sparking in, in our minds, the feelings of our hearts, Lord. It's a reminder that you are great. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be proud of. It's not us, it's you. And it's amazing. Your faithfulness, your love. You are our hope, our rock upon which we stand, our salvation, and you are the gift that we want to share. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for all that you are. Amen.